Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good day, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's roundtable. Time to look back at the big news of the week with three of our top political reporters. And with Congress back in town, it's been a very busy week indeed. Kevin McCarthy fulfilled his promise to hardliners in the GOP caucus by giving several of them key committee assignments while bouncing two California colleagues, Democrats Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, from the Intelligence Committee. McCarthy also rode to the rescue of George Santos, giving him two choice committee assignments, even though New York Republicans have disowned him. In other news, President Biden reversed course and agreed to send American tanks to Ukraine. Republicans dug in their heels to cut Social Security and Medicare as a price for raising the debt ceiling. Mike Pence became the latest former vice president to discover classified documents in his closet. And Donald Trump comes out of hibernation tomorrow. So much to talk about, so let's get right to it with today's panel. Jason Dick, editor-in-chief of CQ Roll Call and host of the Political Theater Podcast. Hello, Jason. Good morning, Bill. All right. Ginger Gibson, senior Washington editor at NBC News Digital. Hello, Ginger. Hello. Glad to be here. Thank you. Good to have you. And Philip Bump, columnist for The Washington Post, of course, and author of the great new book called Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of American Politics. Welcome, Philip. Thank you very much, sir. Okay, so uh, Jason, uh, Joe Biden, <laughs> Joe Biden was kind of hurting. And then this week, Mike Pence came to his rescue. Um, let's start out with Mike Pence. This is Mike Pence a week ago talking about how serious this whole issue is. The handling of classified materials and the nation's secret is a very serious matter. Uh, and uh, as a former vice president of the United States, I, I, can, uh, I can speak from personal experience about the attention uh, that ought to be paid to those materials when you're in office uh, and after you leave office. And now, Jason, Whoops. he can speak about <laughs> he can speak about the attention that is paid when you discover them in your closet. <laughs> is this the end of the story? Uh, I don't think so because we still have. Uh, let's see, we've got Obama and Al Gore <laughs> and a few other people uh, who are probably rifling through their storage units right now. Let's uh, you know, wondering if some innocuous memo that they held on to for some reason and and can't. Can't we all sort of like, you know, uh, sympathize a little bit because I'm looking at my desk right now in, in my <laughs> home office and it's just filled with crap. You know, like there's just all kinds of I don't know what's in these all these files. Uh, I don't think that this is the end of the story, but I think it might be the end of a lot of the political sting of it. It certainly, you know, increases the chances that Donald Trump, who's had a document problem of his own, which is, I think, far more serious. It's easy to say it's easy to conclude that this is a. Very, you know, like his hundreds of documents, you know, that he took to Mar-a-Lago and 
and resisted, you know, uh, turning them over to the archives to, to the point where a search warrant was warranted. Um, you know, it, he may hit off the hook a little bit politically for this because it's just it after after the third person, you know, like admits like, oh, yeah, I have some, some of these things, too, or are they're found. It just the story starts to lose a little bit of altitude, even if it's quite serious in, in Trump's case. Yeah, but Ginger, with Donald Trump, there is a criminal investigation underway, right? Where, as Jason points out, big difference between both Mike Pence and Joe Biden. That doesn't go away, does it? There's, there's definitely a difference. I mean, they're not the same. We're talking about documents that were taken uh, knowingly by Trump. Trump wanted these documents, as our reporting at NBC has shown several times. And we're talking about what thus far appears to be unintentional, although I, we could still learn more about Pence and Biden and how they came to be. But it's certainly plausible that Biden and Pence had no idea that these records were in their possession during this time. So these are different circumstances. These feel like different things. But I do think that politically, um, there's going to be a problem in terms of not, in terms of separating them. And legally, um, any lawyer who's looking at prosecuting anything is going to be asking, can I convince a jury of this? And when the message is so public um, and it's been so muddled, it's going to be harder to convince a jury. So um, you might be able to read the law and say, Trump satisfies every element, but any prosecutor is going to say, but can I convince a jury that there is a fault here? And I think that's one of the things that's going to make um, prosecuting very difficult, especially when you talk to legal experts about how they go about moving forward. And obviously there are special counsels and that's supposed to remove some things, but that's the decision-making process any prosecutor is going to be making when they're looking and making those decisions. So it's definitely much more muddled, definitely much more complicated. And I just have to add, I think Republicans made a tactical error in the way that they responded to Biden's records. Um, they could have just said, see, look, everyone has records. They make mistakes. It happens. The system is the problem. Let us all forget Trump and move on. Um, but they just couldn't resist criticizing. <laughs> um, and I think that they made that tactical error. And had they done that, then when Pence's records came to light, they would have been like, see, we're even more right than we were before. Mm -hmm. um, and they just didn't take that opportunity. So for the record, Philip, the National Archives yesterday uh, put out a request to every living former president and vice president <laughs> to, to search their quarters. Um, that does not include Mount Vernon or Monticello, by the way. But, um, Jim, but you Ginger, can picture Jimmy and Rosalind just digging through their closets, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> As we speak, right? Well, I, I want to ask you about Ginger touched on something. Mm -hmm. Isn't part of the problem the process, meaning there are just too damn many documents or pieces of paper that are stamped classified. I mean, maybe. It's sort of hard to say because we don't really know what particularly the Pence and, and Biden papers were. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously a president or vice president of the United States is going to come into contact with a lot more. I would say the, the a much higher percentage of what they look at is classified than a standard run of the mill government show. You know, I, I do want to say, though, I, I don't I don't I don't I don't really agree with this idea that this muddies the water particularly. I mean, I think that the Trump case is, is really clear when it's articulated clearly, right? Which is that 
they said, hey, you have documents. And he said, okay, here's some documents. And there's a bunch of classified stuff. They're like, okay, we're going to poke around on this a little bit longer. And then they said, okay, if you have anything else, you got to turn it over. They said, okay, we swear. Here's all the stuff we have with classified markings. And they're like, well, actually, that's not the case. And then they found a bunch of I mean, it's just <laughs> like, it's really not the same. And, and I think mm-hmm. that, that it's, you know, I, I understand how it's easy to see how people will think it's the same and why prosecutors might be wary of it. But I really think it's important just to be like, no, look, these, these are not even close to the same. This is, you know, Peter Strzok, who obviously has many horses in this particular race. But Peter Strzok, the former FBI official, puts it well, which I think is that, you know, this is a an obstruction case, which happens to include classified documents in Trump's case, which mm-hmm. is not obviously what we see with Biden defense at least at this point. Right, right. No, a clear difference. I think the media has been... Uh, maybe not initially, but lately has certainly been making that case clear. Okay, now I need the help of each of you to, to figure out what the hell is going on with the debt ceiling. Are they or are they not going to take us over the brink? It depends on what Republicans you listen to have to say. Let's start out with Ted Cruz, right? He brinksmanship all the way. What the rules say is we will use the debt ceiling as leverage to force real and meaningful structural reforms to fix the underlying problem. That is the official position of the Republican conference. All right. Now, let's listen to Rick Scott, who is the, Demis, the Senate Republican, still in charge with electing new uh, Republican senators, even though he didn't do such a great job the last time around. Uh, here's Rick Scott's tape. I don't know one Republican, including me, I'm going to, would ever cut Medicare or Social Security. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure there's no cuts in Medicare or Social Security. So, Jason, what is their position? Well, I think that uh, as you, as you hit to that, Bill, it is evolving. Uh, there are there are some hard, <laughs> there are some hardliners uh, who you know that they want they want to you know take advantage of the situation and 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 push for something that they've been angling for for a while, which is a somewhat vague uh, um, goal of entitlement reform and spending cuts. And the only problem is is that whenever somebody articulates what that means, it usually you know especially if you take uh, you know, some, some of the most popular government programs off the table, as, as Rick Scott was saying, you know, Medicare uh, or, or Social Security. Well, what you end up with, is you'd, you'd have to cut about 85 percent of the budget for the for the United States. So this this reality seems to be dawning on on Republicans. And uh, one of our uh, one of our reporters at CQ, Paul Krawczak, you know, he is he's done some reporting that, that found that there is a there's a, a little bit of a movement among the House Republicans, which Mitch McConnell uh, said this, whatever, whatever happens here needs to come from Speaker McCarthy uh, and the House Republicans, knowing that he really doesn't want any part of this uh, at, at this point. Uh, there, there is talk about tying the debt limit, tying like the in any kind of uh, su- a suspension of the debt limit to the end of the fiscal year, so that they can go through regular order on appropriations, because they're realizing that they we've already actually gone over the debt limit. The Treasury Department right. is using extraordinary measures to make to, to make sure that they can pay bills, you know, suspension of certain payments to people's retirement plans and so forth. Um, but this, you know, this won't last very long. It can only la- it might only last a couple of months. And and that's if nothing unforeseen happens. So uh, the Republicans are starting to think that, like, maybe they want to try to to push this off a little bit, which, you know, it's I, I would I would guess that that is probably where we're heading with the Republican Party. But as far as a coherence in a strategy, uh, there is not one. And as you, as you mentioned, Ted Cruz, you know, he he wanted he, he pushed for a government shutdown in 2013. 
uh, over the, um, you know, over Obamacare. He didn't get his, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't get his way, uh, but he, he certainly brought a lot of attention to, you know, people and started them thinking like, oh, hey, maybe this Obamacare thing isn't so bad. <laughs> mm. uh, so it's, it's, it's worth noting that a lot of these plans when the, the the brinkmanship rarely works out well for the people pushing for the brinksmanship. Well, that's it, Ginger, right? I mean, we, we've seen this movie before, <laughs> uh, and it hasn't played out very well for those who shut down the government or threaten to, even. Well, and it hasn't actually turned out that badly for people who shut down the government or threatened mm. to, right? The Republicans shut down the government repeatedly, and there was very little political ramification for them. I think that distinction we need to be looking for here is, does this affect people's everyday lives? Um, yes, the government shuts down and you were planning to go to a national park and now you don't have a bathroom, like you're annoyed. But that's a very small segment of the population. Uh, what we don't know is how the markets are going to respond um, if they think that the U.S. is defaulting. Um, and if you watch your 401k crater, then yes, um, you're going to have a real effect. It's going to affect your view and you're going to be more inclined to want to politically punish someone who's done it. Um, but if it doesn't, um, I think it's going to be probably viewed as more of the same. Out of yeah, but, yeah, but Philip, if you don't get your social security check, right, <laughs> or <laughs> if you if you can't buy your meds on Medicare, um, that's a different story. Yeah, I mean, th th this is very true. I mean, obviously, there is the, the, the ramifications of not uh, raising the debt limit here are a little murky. I mean, I'm not an economics reporter, but my understanding is that, you know, there, there could be a wide range of effects. But yeah, this question of Social Security and Medicare, I mean, I, I mean, you mentioned I, I have this book out that talks about generations. And so it's hard for me not to see it through this lens. But a third yeah. of Republicans are age 65 or over. Analysis I've done, right? You know, and so like, is that a group that's clamoring for cuts to Social Security or Medicare? No, of course not, right? And in fact, in the book, I actually looked at the way in which Fox News had started talking about Social Security, and Medicare cuts less and less as Americans grew older and as the Republican Party grew older. So this is not a group of people who right now is saying, "Hey, here's where we want to have these cuts." And I think it's important too to recognize that this entire conversation has been firmly on the terrain of the. House Republicans, right? I mean, yeah, there are other things you can do. A, you can just operate at a deficit, which was the Republican Party is very content to do over the course of 2017 till about January 20th, 2021. Or you could raise revenue, which the Republican Party cut taxes in late 2017, right? So it's not as though this is the only way that we could progress forward. Um, but I just, I, I find it impossible to believe Republican parties can get a lot of traction uh, by targeting Social Security and Medicare in particular. So, Jason, this gets down to the debt ceiling, right, which is one of the big items that Kevin McCarthy has announced uh, with the new agenda for the new Republican majority uh, in the House. CNN's poll this morning shows that 73 percent of, Amer of Americans say that the Republicans are not addressing and not focusing on America's real problems with this agenda of debt ceiling, investigation of Hunter Biden, you know, uh, looking into whether or not we should be supporting Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera, what we've heard. Um, uh, Kevin McCarthy in trouble from the beginning? Uh, well, yeah, I think this is just a continuation of the of the problems that Kevin McCarthy has faced. I mean, let's let's not forget that you know we took him fifteen ballots <laughs> to to be elected speaker. I mean, he's he's been uh, he's just had like sort of these small moments of relative peace, you know, where he can sort of. 
celebrate by kicking Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell off Intel and, you know, do a little dance there. And then then he's faced with, you know, uh, what to do about the people who are pushing to us to uh, to default on our debt uh, and to, to make a political point. I think that you know, the, the the overreach that we're seeing already, that my favorite investigation so far that's been announced by James Comer, who's the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, is um, who is buying Hunter Biden's art uh, <laughs> and, and at inflated prices. <laughs> and, and, and you know, there's even like photos of the art, you know, like in, in the announcement and, and like who's buying this? Is it are these anonymous buyers? You know, are they are they Chinese, you know, buyers? And I just thought like, well, one. I mean, just stepping back a little bit, like, have you ever, you know, thought about the art market and why out no make it really doesn't make sense in general, not just for Hunter Biden, but like who for somebody who's dealing with like inflation right now? I mean, like inflation is still an issue. It's, it's come down, but it's still an issue. I mean, every headline, it seems, you know, from the perspective of somebody in tech or media is like, oh, here's more layoffs. Um, I mean, we're we're still dealing with some serious problems as a society. We've got a war that seems to be just continuing to escalate in Europe between Ukraine and and Russia. Um, and, you know, the, the more that they say, like, hey, let's breach the debt or let's investigate, you know, Hunter Biden or things like that. Yeah, that that I can't help but think that several people, Democrats, Republicans, independents say, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, here's one Republican. Um Congresswoman Victoria Sparks from Indiana, who is asking uh, that very question of her leadership. If Kevin McCarthy has some concerns, we have an ethics committee. You know, he needs to make his accusations, and these people, you know, have to make their case. We're becoming like a theater full of actors in the circus, and it's unacceptable. We have to govern for the people, and it's not happening here. She said that, Ginger, when she announced that she would not vote to throw uh, Elon Omar off uh, off of the committee, as Kevin McCarthy wants to do. I mean, that's right. There's just this sort of political posturing. Uh, this is being viewed as retaliation uh, for Democrats removing Marjorie Taylor Greene off of her committees and Paul Gosar off his committees in the previous Congress um, because they posted things that were considered uh, widely inappropriate, racist, um, and indulging in conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, they they said it was potentially um, causing harm to people, um, and so they've pointed to Omar and they disagree with her policy positions. And as we saw Sparks and we saw Nancy Mace, another Republican who has said she will oppose this, um, say this that they shouldn't be kicking people off of their committees because of policy disagreements, right? And really, more that this is a um, this is just show. And I think that's really the core of what we're watching unfold in the house um you know the it was the speaker fight for for days and days and 15 ballots was really sort of drama for washington but regular people just didn't care and i think part of that is because it it hadn't little to no bearing on their life. Is it Kevin McCarthy or one of the other, you know, 200 and something Republicans in the House? The the House seems to be on the same trajectory to do the same things. Um, and that is very little substance and lots of noise. Um, and so, you know, Adam Schiff off the Intel Committee, there's not a vote on that, but uh, he's going to raise a lot of money in his Senate bid um, off the fact that he's been kicked off his Intel Committee. And he's going to have a lot less committee work to do uh, to be able to be outside you know, yeah, in California yeah. campaigning. Right. Yeah, he might actually thank end up thanking Kevin McCarthy <laughs> for getting him off the intelligence committee. Well, Philip, the one committee that I uh, have questions about 
And this is the name. They put this actual name on the committee headed by Jim Jordan is the weaponization of the federal government. Um, where, where, is this, where is this heading? Yeah, uh, everywhere. Like literally, that's intent. It, it is, they, they are claiming that this is meant to be like a new church committee, which was the famous Senate committee that existed in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. It was a response to uh, both Watergate and more broadly, uh, the revelation of systemic uh, investigations by federal agencies into, into everyday Americans. Uh, and the church committee did great work uh, digging up, you know, what the FBI was up to, what the CIA was up to, and all these, uh, uh, you know, the, it dug deeper into the FBI's targeting MLK, for example, things like that. So this is this is the, the way they're talking about this thing because they want to try and glom onto the legitimacy of the church committee. But it is very obviously being established as a fishing expedition for Jordan uh, and other Republicans. They have announced this. You know, when you look, I actually went back a few weeks ago and compared the mandate of the church committee compared to this this uh, select committee. And the church committee is like, we're going to investigate X aspect of Y on Z. And this one's like, see what the FBI did, right? I mean, it's just sort of like, it's very yeah. loosely tailored because the entire point is to try and just figure out places uh, where they can elevate things that make the FBI or other federal uh, agencies look bad uh, and bolster right-wing talking points. I mean, it, it's, you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't mean to be too blunt about it, but there's no indication that it's anything more than that. Uh, they're almost uh, asserting that the FBI, the CIA, and the Pentagon, right, were, sure. um, were tools of the Democratic Party used to go after Republicans. Well, I mean, Donald Trump's saying that about the National Archives and Records Administration, right? Uh, I mean, it's like, you, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, anyone who who produces any information that is at all derogatory, however accurate, is cast as being part of the lib conspiracy. And, you know, I mean, yes, absolutely, it's the case that there exist moments of government uh, overstep uh, that we want to be very cautious about how and where the government is investigating uh, Americans and that they're following proper procedures in doing so. Yes, absolutely, that's the case. This committee, however, is not intended to do that, right? I mean, there's, you know, there's already been a re-examination re, uh, of the Russia probe. That was John Durham's. It was a complete flop. There's no indication that this is going to have much more luck with a much broader mandate. Okay. Bill, can I just say, yeah, we, we need help from your listeners and anyone else to come up with what we're going to call this committee yes. because the name yeah. is like incredibly long. Yeah. No one <laughs> wants to call it the weaponization committee. And I don't know if this was done on purpose, but has anyone noticed the acronym for the committee would be WTFG? <laughs> I think that's what we call it. <laughs> yes. So we need a name for it. And I am soliciting people to tweet it at me. Thank you. All right. There it is. There's your invitation, folks. Uh, now you go to your <laughs> you go to Twitter while we take a quick break here on, on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, and then we'll be back with uh, today's panel of Philip Bump and Ginger Gibson and uh, Jason Dick. Today's roundtable is brought to you by the great members of the Iron Workers Union, the Iron Workers Union. They're the people, I mean, look, you talk about all the iconic structures in this country, the Golden Gate Bridge, the St. Louis Arch, the New World Trade Center, that bridge that uh, President Biden and Mitch McConnell uh, just uh, for under infrastructure going to rebuild across the Ohio River down in Kentucky. Uh, as they are all built by the iron workers, great members of the Iron Workers Union under the leadership of President Eric Dean. The sky is the limit is their motto, and boy, they really live up to it. So we salute the members of the Iron Workers Union, thank them for their great work building America, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod.
And we're back with today's roundtable. Our guest from CQ Roll Call, Jason Dick from the Washington Post and author of the new book, The Aftermath, Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, of Philip Bump and from NBC News Digital, Ginger Gibson. Ginger, let's start with you. The bear is coming out of hibernation tomorrow. Donald Trump showing up in New Hampshire and Georgia, we haven't seen him leave Mar-a-Lago since he announced last November. What's That's going right. on? He's, he's <laughs> been in sunny Florida, uh, hanging out there. He, he has been doing stuff. We had a, a reporting this week from Mark Caputo at NBC. He's been hosting, uh, started a series of dinners with social media influencers on the right. He had the libs of TikTok woman and the guy who runs Babylon B. Um, so he's been trying to sort of start putting together a campaign, but it's been clear he's not been in any hurry to actually campaign. Um, I think there's a big question mark about what a campaign event would look like for Trump right now. He's insisted he would have big crowds, but um, that may not be the case, although it would probably depend on where he went. But um, I think we were all pretty clear that when he launched last year, that this was like, a, he's just said he's in and he wasn't actually interested in running yet. Um, I, you know, I think we're all going to be trying to grapple with what we do now that he's out on the road. How do we cover him? How do we write about him? He's not a regular candidate. Um, obviously, he's getting his Twitter back, or he got his Twitter back, he's getting his Facebook back. Um, it does feel like he's getting his band back together, right? Um, and starting <laughs> his tour. Um, but I don't know who's going to buy a ticket, and I don't know how we're going to view the, the, the routine once it starts again. Um, but I do think there's going to be a lot of really... Um, outrageous things we're going to hear him say. We put out a video yesterday on education, which really more tipped his hand that Ron DeSantis is making him nervous. Um, mm. So I would mm. expect to start to see a lot of swipes at the Florida governor. Um, but he is he is back. Donald Trump is back on the campaign trail. And Philip, Donald Trump is also back on Instagram and Facebook. Right? What, yeah. what, what do you expect? Well, I mean, honestly, what I expect is he's going to use it primarily for fundraising. When he ran in 2016, uh, yeah. in particular, all I mean, he invested very, very heavily in Facebook uh, through Brad Parscale, who's running that campaign. Uh, they had a Facebook staffer that was were embedded in the campaign, to help them optimize what they're doing. He sees this absolutely as a conduit for making cash. You know, he has this exclusive agreement with Truth Social for at least the next little bit, where he has to post first there and then only hours later on other platforms. Although he may, you know, it's reporting he may let that slide, but Facebook absolutely is a money conduit for him, and I think that's probably what he's most excited about. Right. Um, and Jason, as Ginger indicated, talking about education, it does seem to indicate that he's looking over his shoulder at Donald, at uh, Ron DeSantis, right? Um, is, 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 did we really see Ron DeSantis as the, the, the clear alternative to Trump, the front runner? Um, well, certainly more than Mike Pence, I guess, at this point, uh, <laughs> I, I would say. Um, I mean, it, it's weird. I mean, you know, DeSantis, even when he was a member of Congress, was not the easiest read. You know, uh, I mean, he's he you know, he seems he seems to be gearing up, you know, for for a campaign. Uh, you know, he is hit like the he's he's gone after the, you know, the, the sort of the bases, you know, 
uh, boogeymen uh, in woke curriculums and and stuff like this. I mean that that's the the educational aspect of this is is trying to make sure that you know teachers know their place and that parents are empowered and and all this kind of stuff. And I'm sorry if I sound just sort of disdainful, but as a former teacher myself and as mm. a uh, as a son of a teacher. I, I find uh, I, I found it um, I, I, I resisted efforts to control me from the principal's office, much less the governor's office or the president's office. So um, I'm just revealing my own biases there. But, uh, you know, this it's unclear. I mean, DeSantis is still young. Right. I mean, like there it, it's conceivable that he could he could wait this out. Let just just to see what Trump does. I mean, I would say, you know, if if I had to bet on it, that he probably would run because there he he's probably well aware that there are only so many windows that that you have to to run for president. He's term limited uh, as as governor of Florida, so you know he's it seems like he's kind of lined up his ducks to, uh, you know, in 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 the state there after winning re-election pretty heavily. So, I. I would see him as a clear alternative, just as a as a political journalist, but you know, just for want of other people. I mean, Rick Scott, who we mentioned earlier, you know, has has every once in a while there's this sort of little boomlet of stories about whether Rick Scott's going to run for for president. Um, I mean, he's he's up for re-election, you know, this, this time in in 2024. So it it seems you know he has a decision, but he doesn't really have very much of a groundswell of support. So DeSantis at this point is the alternative. Whether he jumps in. It seems like he's ready and he and there would be a constituency, but who knows? So um, there are three other issues I'd like to touch on briefly and, and bounce around. I'm totally unrelated. Uh, let me take them one at a time and Ginger, start with you that this week, uh, Congressman Ted Lieu from California introduced a resolution in the House floor that was, um, I hear your toddler in the background. Say hello. <laughs> she's like three rooms over. The joy of being two years old. She's very loud. Sorry. She's got a, I wonder who she takes that after. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so anyhow, Ted Lou introduced this resolution that was written by ChatGPT. And we also learned this week that ChatGPT successfully passed four law exams at one university. Uh, and what was it? CNET had admitted last week that they've actually had articles written for their news site written by uh, AI. Teacher, is this out of the, the, you know what? The cat's out of the bag, like forever on this. Where are we? Where are we going? Uh, as someone who took uh, my fair share of law school exams, it would have been nice to have um, uh, yeah. <laughs> to take them for me, although I don't know that that would have gotten me uh, passing grades. Uh, but uh, it's pretty remarkable. And you're right. Ted Lieu asked the AI to write the bill for him um, so that he could sort of make a point. I think that we're just on a new horizon and we're going to see a lot of discussion about this. And it's a real test of Congress. I think um, we know that Congress has struggled to catch up with technology, um, but sometimes they do, particularly if it's a national security issue. Um, and AI feels like a kind of scary thing that that might allow them to sort of coalesce around some agreement. Um, but yeah, they haven't still figured out how to regulate the internet. So I'm not particularly optimistic <laughs> that they're going to figure out how to regulate AI before that. But um, it's something to watch closely and it's something to think about what Congress is viewing and thinking about and looking and their priorities that aren't the real 
hot button flashpoint issues, that they are things that they can get real bipartisan agreement. Um, and so that's where we could see some really sort of on the down low um, cooperation and productivity out of Congress. Right. Uh, so, Chase, I want to turn to you with a uh, neighborhood issue. Uh, you and I both live on Capitol Hill. Uh, another friend of ours said that a uh, couple of days ago, right here on Capitol Hill, he looked out the window and there was George Santos walking in our neighborhood, followed by a flock of reporters. He may be moving into our neighborhood, uh, Jason. Should he turn? Should he sign a long-term lease? <laughs> I I mean I am I think this is one of the more fascinating stories that we will be grappling with over the course of the next uh, few months and certainly this Congress. Um, it, it doesn't seem like Santos is in any hurry uh, to to own up to what may or may not be his past. I mean, we you know we write member profiles at, at CQ and Roll Call, uh, and a lot a lot of what's in Mr. Santos's profile for us is unconfirmed because we simply can't confirm it. Um, I mean, that being said, uh, as as uh, you know, you know, Victoria Spurs was talking about the Ethics Committee in, in the context of other members uh, in the House. I don't think that that's going to. Uh, I don't think it's the House that's going to be the determinant of of whether he stays in Congress. Uh, the, the the various sort of federal investigations, whether he committed you know fraud, uh, is is at the federal level is going to be I think determining his fate. I don't see him actually leaving Congress of his own of his own volition. Mm -hmm. I think that that would be something that if if a federal probe, if a federal investigation uh, bore some fruit against him against the allegations that uh, that he committed fraud. I mean the the House Republicans do have a rule that if you're indicted, you have to step down from yeah. committee assignments so that that will that could come up you know but you know these these investigations work very slowly uh and <laughs> yeah. and again i think that the ethics process is is a long shot because it's just it, it works it works very slowly in the best of circumstances in the most functional houses uh and we're we're still waiting for evidence that that will be the case with this particular house so i think santos is probably fine to sign a, a lease uh I, buying a house i don't know about that uh you know i mean and also he he has all these lovely homes in the hamptons you know this, why would he want to put down roots here Thir thir he already owns 13 homes right yeah exactly. right all right so philip i've saved with saved for you the uh the most important issue of all, and that is uh, later today uh, in Orange County, California, the Republican National Committee, this sure. has been getting so much attention, has got this big battle about who's going to be the new head of the RNC. Will there be a new head of the RNC or will Rona McDaniel, don't call me Romney, right. um, be able to <laughs> beat out Hermit Dillon? Does anybody care? Well, Harmy Dillon, and let's not forget Mike Lindell, who's also thrown his hat. Oh, sorry, like, sorry. It doesn't yeah. seem like he's really going here. Does anyone My care? Pillow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. It's sort of like it, 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 this thought just occurred to me. So forgive me if the metaphor is not complete, <laughs> but it's a bit akin to the DeSantis Trump fight, right? Because you have this person who sort of the agreed upon not fringe Trump can still appeal to the Trump side, but also can appeal to the establishment side who's going against the hard right figure. Right. So in the in the first case, you know, uh, McDaniel is DeSantis. She is a person who has managed to hold on to the establishment part of the party, been able to be friends with Donald Trump, been able to keep at least some mm. Trumpian aspects of the party alive, who's being challenged by this person who is none of that, who is a Tucker Carlson favorite 
uh, who is, uh, you know, who, who is doing, you know, making all these noises that are in alliance with the sorts of things that Donald Trump wants to talk about and hear about. Uh, and it seems as though since this is really the core of the Republican establishment, uh, that McDaniel's probably safe. Uh, that said, it's fascinating to see that there's even this level of challengement, this challenge this yeah. deep into the establishment. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Republican establishment has been under fire for at least 15 years now. And very slowly, the fringe has been eating into it first with the Tea Party revolution, then with the Donald Trump uh, nomination, then with Donald Trump's entire presidency and at the aftermath. And now they've actually reached the heart of the RNC itself. It looks like the establishment is going to be able to rebuff that. But does that mean they then regain ground and can, you know, start pushing back and reclaim territory? I I'm not sure. All right. We will see later today. We'll talk about that next week on the roundtable. That's it for this week's roundtable with Ginger Gibson and Philip Bump and Jason Dick. Thank you to our panelists. But before we let you run out the door to enjoy the weekend, uh, we always ask you of all the stories that you've been looking at, what's the one that stopped you in your tracks? Uh, we call it our favorite story of the week. Uh, Ginger, you want to head us off? Yeah, Please. so my favorite story of the week um, was one done by a reporter at NBC, Lawrence Hurley. And he delved into how if you stand up and disrupt a Supreme Court hearing or you stand up oh. and disrupt the United yep. States Senate or House, the punishments are very different. Uh, <laughs> disrupt the Supreme Court, you're going to spend the night in jail. Um, yeah. They're going to prosecute you. You're going to have a criminal record. Disrupt Congress, and they're going to write you a ticket, and you pay a $50 <laughs> fine, and then you go about your way. And that's basically it. Um, and it's kind of a fascinating look, especially given the moment that the Supreme Court is in. Um, really, you know, we had a story yesterday, Kavanaugh defending them, trying to bolster their legitimacy, but they've really just become the center of a political fight. Lots of questions about political influence. Mm -hmm. um, and they're trying to sort of tamp down that image by harshly punishing people who come to the building, which doesn't really help, I yeah. think, in the end of the day. Yeah. So it's a fascinating yeah. read. He talked to women who um, did protest inside the building after the Dobbs decision. Um, and it really is an interesting look at how justice is not the same on the same block uh, in, the, in Washington. No, I thought it was fascinating. That was a, that was a really important story. I had, I had no idea that was the case. So good for, good for, good for you to getting that story out. Jason, what caught you or caught your attention? Well, it is Oscar week. Uh, the nom uh, nominations oh, yes. came out. And so this, I mean, this is, you know, the ca catnip for people like me who, you know, are, are big movie buffs. And one of the, I think the, the smaller stories that is so like, you know, cool about like where movies are right now is, I mean, I, I, I did really like everything everywhere all at once, but it didn't feel like a big surprise that they got as many nominations as they did because it's a very good movie. There's been a lot of buzz about it. The thing that occurred to me as I was reading, you know, in particular, you know, like seeing the nominations and then reading some of the downloads like Ann Hornaday's, you know, uh, look at it in the, in the Washington Post was Andrea Riseborough, who is, got a, a best actress nomination for to Leslie, this like micro movie, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that was released at uh, first. It premiered at South by Southwest last year. She got an Oscar nomination. And, you know, and this and this was really like a. I mean, this was a real surprise among uh, several other surprises that came out. Uh, th this, I think the budget for this movie was something like under a hundred thousand dollars. It, it's, 
it, it was, I mean, she has, I mean, she's, she's an actress. She's been working in it. And there are some people uh, in, in the movie who you recognize like Mark Maron. Uh, but this, this, there was no real campaign aside from people who like, you know, sort of took up the, the, uh, the, her, her charge, you know, her baton, mm-hmm. uh, because they were just so impressed with the performance. And, and, and it got to the right. point where people like Ed Norton and Howard Stern were doing it. And I, I gotta say that, like, I, I was like, I was amazed because I was at South by Southwest last year <laughs> watching movies and I didn't, this, this movie did not register to me. And I was wow. looking for movies like that. Yeah. So it's just okay. a really great like story right. about, right. about how somebody like, you know, got yeah. their due. Well, I was I was impressed that people still go to movies. You know, that's kind of good. That's kind of good news. Uh, Philip, uh, your turn. Uh, your favorite story this week? Yeah. So mine is 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 a, a little nerdier, which is that uh. the Biden administration uh, came out this week and said that they would finally put into effect Census Bureau uh, recommendations that the way in which we record race in the United States be changed. And so instead of it being hmm. What's your race, white, black, uh, Asian, and what's your ethnicity, Hispanic or not? They're going to make Hispanic essentially one of the racial categories and also add a category for Middle Eastern, North Africa. The reason this is, is interesting to me is not only that I've been doing this book that's looking at race and demography over time in the United States, but that the Trump administration decided not to make this change. And so over the yeah. course of re- huh. reporting for the book, I tried to dig into why that was, spoke with a bunch of people who worked at the Census Bureau, was never able to nail down the story. Uh, but it seems very clear that there was a person at the Office of Management and Budget, which ultimately makes this determination, who was against this sort of racial categorization, who didn't want to see this this breakdown. Uh, there was this push from the right uh, uh, saying that this was a way that progressives try and create new interest groups like this Middle Eastern North, North uh, African category. Uh, but it also seemed like this was a concern that the number of uh, uh, nominatory white people in the United States would necessarily decline because you'd be carving out these other groups uh, and that that was a trigger for their concern. Uh-huh. So it's this yeah. fascinating subtextual uh, conversation about politics and race uh, that now has been apparently resolved in favor of the data nerds at the Census Bureau, which you know <laughs> is a team that I'm always on. So. <laughs> all right. The nerd vote. Uh, indeed. Well, I have to tell you, my favorite story uh, we all uh, follow and love political corruption because that keeps us uh, in business, keeps us writing stuff. Uh, but the corruption we've seen in Washington is nothing uh, compared to the corruption up in British Columbia in a little village called Poiscoop, Poiscoop, rather. Um, and there's a mayor's race up there. There are 800 people who live in that village. Uh, the incumbent mayor lost by a vote of 84 to 79. She lost by five votes. She immediately sued uh, her opponent uh, and accused her of buying the election because during the campaign, uh, the other candidate, whose name is Danielle Veach, um, held a little tea and talk event where she served tea, coffee, and cinnamon buns. And <laughs> the incumbent mayor is accusing her of buying off her votes by <laughs> serving people cinnamon buns. Um now, and by the way, a judge has said, no, that's crazy. Uh, she's still the mayor. The, she, she still won. But I figured out, look, she lost by five votes. She got a total of 84 votes. Um, so that was like less than a dollar a cinnamon bun. I think this may be the new way. 
Maybe we're learning something here from Poos Coop, British Columbia. Mike Bloomberg uh, could have saved money in 2020 if he'd gone this route. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, and with that, again, a big thank you to our panel, Philip Bump. Thank you, Ginger and Jason. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you all for joining us for today's podcast uh, and a roundtable. We're going to be back on Tuesday with a very special podcast. Philip Bump. Yeah, that we've just been listening to all morning is going to be back and talk about this great new book of his, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. So what do we have to thank the baby boom for and what do we have to hold them responsible for? Philip's going to tell us all about it on Tuesday. That's the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Meanwhile, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week with Philip Bump. <laughs>